Welcome to the Brilliant Podcast. This is episode 28. are the brilliant. You are the ones that shine and who are observed, who are truly alive. And this is wonderful because we live in a world of the walking dead, the gray, a world of life as routine, as a chore. On this podcast, we tell of stars, stories, and chocolate waterfalls. We speak of a living anarchy in the shadow of order and necessity. We believe in these stories and that the sharing grows and improves them. Welcome to the Brilliant Podcast. So this is our second to the last um, episode, at least uh, of this particular iteration of uh, the Brilliant Concept. Um, uh, just to, to, to be a little biographical for a moment, I'm a- about to leave on a uh, several-month motorcycle tour, um, traveling mostly along the Canadian border, basic uh, from here to Montreal, and Bellamy is leaving the state and moving to the East Coast. Yep. So if anyone lives near Albany, drop me a line. So this week we're going to talk about um, the topic of the week, which uh, this week was uh, racism. We're going to talk a little bit about the wowdism critique that came out this week, which, of course, we all know was very partial. We're going to talk about this article that's from Roar, not Roar Mag, um, Ritual. Ritual Mag. Uh, called Primitivism Without Catastrophe. And finally, um, Bellamy is going to talk explicitly about sort of the same thing that I did last week where I talked about like what I do and what I would like other people to do. And so this week they're going to fess up and actually admit to being for something. <laughs> if you know Aragorn well, you could tell through a slight change in the timbre of his voice that he was going to say something shit-talky, but it actually was less shit-talky than I thought it was going to be. So, And on that vein, racism. So... Yeah, racism. We've talked about race a couple times on this podcast, and I think it was one of the, the more disagreeable conversations we had, which is a very American phenomenon to get uh, sort of annoyed or uncomfortable or you know, express some sort of animus when the subject of race comes up. Um, something that struck me about the A News thread was how, I guess, the, the strengths and weaknesses of the egoist take where... There's this way of expressing the egoist take that is very alienating, and I think very understandably alienating, that just sort of says, it doesn't exist, why are you talking about it, who cares? I'm Usually the person doesn't say this, but there's a, almost an implication of, I've moved beyond, you know, somehow I'm post-race. And I think that ends up sounding grossly similar to the liberal colorblind approach of, hey, we can all get along, and and just integrate ourselves into this whole system, and who cares, and why do you want special treatment? And I think that that's an unfortunate way of expressing it that annoys me as well. And I think the maybe what could be said with more nuance that is valuable is that just because you stop believing in a reification obviously doesn't mean it stops being real in a certain sense. If something's sociologically constructed, it's going to keep mattering whether you believe in it or not. 
and otherwise ideology wouldn't be a big deal and we could just move past it. And I think maybe what uh, some of these people are trying to say and what I would say is it's fun to have these slogans like smash patriarchy or smash the state, but these are not physical things in the world that can be attacked. Not smashable. (laughs) Not smashable. Race, also not smashable. Um, There was that... uh, that particular incident in Occupy where the video circulated of the cop just walking down a whole row of... of UC Davis students. Sitting. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. The UC Davis students pepper spraying them all, and then the Occupy people started saying, you can't pepper spray an idea. Well, in the same sense, you can't... You know, I'm not convinced that confronting small groups of people who very overtly express their militant racism is the way that we actually fight racism, and that racism is a, a reified social relation, and... So, yes, the way that we can reasonably resist it is not necessarily by attacking these people, but by changing social relations. And it's not uh, as easy, I think, as some of the egoists want to make it seem by saying, like, oh, I'm just, I'm, I don't believe in this anymore. I mean, it's something that's deeply programmed into you. It's um, manifesting itself at a physiological level, the way that you, your mind is responding when you look at someone. Are you saying that, that the ego's perspective seems weak, and so you think that you need to go one step further and refer to racism as guys? Yeah. And that, that's, that's actually what it takes? That's the more advanced egoist level once you start using German language. Um, and, it, you know, it's, it's, it's like anything else, like addiction or something, where you have to change the way that you, you're, you program. You, you reflect, you can change your actions a little bit, you reflect more, and through a very gradual change of thoughts and habits, you can start to change the social relationships you have. And it's, it's not just a matter of uh, saying, if I don't see it or if I don't look at it, then it goes away. Well, I think it's important to, to say that a lot of the people who are talking about race in, in public aren't actually doing it on the, on the philosophical level that you're talking about when you're talking sure, about social sure. relationships. They're talking about an operational activity, which mm-hmm. is called, you know, anti-racist, anti-racism or, there's a video linked in this story that that sort of draws this distinction between being a non-racist and an anti-racist, and the egoists very much fall in in the context of the the story as a non-racist position. Yeah, um, you know, whereas the anti-racist position is this more overtly political position that basically says that the that the way to fight white supremacy is sort of as an action verb. And you know, in this in 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 a series of public demonstrations against it, and 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 it sort of has this look and tenor of what we would call activism, and so so I think what what the what the question was trying to approach think uh, uh, is is what do people see is a model of a you know sort of like post revolutionary society or a society where we've where we've you know transformed our our uh, relationships insofar as we describe them in the terms of the state or capitalism, what does an ATR world of race relationships look like? And, um, and that was a question not answered very much in the, in the thread. Um, one of my favorite points in here were, were points like this, where it said, um, of people who are trying to engage that question, which is no solution will ever be anywhere close to global in scale, any potential end of racism to the extent that an end is possible can only occur within small spaces. And then in order to achieve relative egalitarian functionality, changing one's privileged or oppressed identity will have to be very messy and put some individuals occasionally into extremely uncomfortable places. And this is, I think, like I absolutely agree with point one. And point two, 
the details of point two are extremely difficult because I, I think that there is something worth reflecting on that you hear a lot of people <clears throat> like this was a, clearly the conversation when we were talking about affirmative action in the, in the eighties and nineties. But this idea that, you know, if you're going to end a, if you accept the premise that we live in a white supremacist society that expli- that is explicitly anti-black, right? So, to use right. some new jargon, sure. That <clears throat> that to to set matters straight, or or to or to you know even attempt to achieve any sort of egalitarian relationship between the only two races that matter, which is white people and black people, um, <laughs> that that what you have to do is you know you really have to address this issue straight on, and somewhere it looks like forty acres and a mule. Or you know that's sort of like well that's that's part of the conversation almost uh-huh. always. Uh-huh. Um, in other words, that that there's back pay owed, whether that back pay is moral, whether that back pay is specifically monetary, mm-hmm. whether that back pay is meta monetary. Mm-hmm. And so, to me, one of the ways in which I would have liked this conversation to go would would be to look at what would it really look like to as a society to basically say. There's a, per, a group of people who have been the opposite of privileged, who have been oppressed for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. How do we orient a world that you know maybe puts a timer on it, puts a hundred-year timer on it, but that basically honors black people as the kings and queens that they should be, and and really sort of as a cultural value reorients our, our world yeah. away from sort of white cultural values and toward quote unquote black cultural values. Like to me these are the kind of experimental conversations I, I wish that, that this thread could have could have had. Because I think that the answers to, to some of that would be very interesting. Especially as black America is changing. Right. It's interesting some of the rhetoric that comes out of that orientation where you see these things like like um, black nationalist rhetoric of, to the effect of we built this country. We you know we're the rightful inheritors of this country and really if you go back and then there's this whole revisionist history told that actually you know, we're the ones who uh, came up with modern mathematics and science, and and we are the create the arch- true architects of civilization. And you start to see, to me, the huge gap between the anarchist position and the rhetoric that's coming out of that as to what is seen as the good and what is claimed, and what and that then there it even gets into this kind of moral language of you know rights to possess. Yeah, I I I, uh, I find that commentary borderline racist. I just said, yeah, uh, but but mostly, like when I talk about the changing of Black America, partially what I what I'm talking about is the fact that, like, the nationalist voices and like Black nationalist voices are a lot quieter than, than they ever used to be. Mm-hmm. Like even in my life in the '90s, the popularity of Malcolm X in the '90s very much sort of was a, a, a revitalization of the sort of Nation of Islam type type perspectives. But since the 90s, those voices have really become very quiet. Or to put it differently, I experienced changing black America to be increasingly middle class. And and one of the uh, topics was, I think, brought up in somewhere in popular culture, and I'm not remembering the, the source right now, talked about one of the reasons why a lot of black people are against certain types of taxation is because the first generation of um, black American millionaires are about to die. Mm. And so it has these tax consequences. Mm-hmm. Of, like inheritance tax? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, uh, capital gains tax. Right. Uh-huh. So if, if you 
talk about like you know it's it's fairly frequent that 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 issues of like uh, tolerance around homosexuality are talked about in the context of black churches and sort of where black America falls on these questions. Um, obviously, because I mostly associate with radicals, you know, I mostly am, am hearing uh, black voices sort of talk about the things that they want to talk about, which which are you know on some level economic issues mm-hmm. and um and because the economics have changed demonstrably in the past 40 years that's that's been this really radical change that's really different than than the nationalist voices you're talking about which of course are nationalism and all, almost all nationalist voices have the, t- the tenor that you're Mm-hmm. And, and you're bringing up. You're saying what I said was borderline. I don't care about that. I'm not trying to double down on that accusation. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just, yes. I mean, I guess my point just being that um, the the difference between sort of redistributive sort of claims versus <laughs> anti-civilization sort of claims is my point. Well, that's. I mean, that's just because, of course, if you're going to judge almost any perspective from an anti-civ perspective right. no that's, one's gonna i mean no one's gonna agree with me. i mean even most you know almost most native voices that pop up within a political context are aren't don't sound like anti-civ voices right right and in in general they, they sound like redistributive voices actually right sure i mean that's if if if, if you're gonna uh, occupy if, the min- minoritarian of the minoritarian position and try to weigh everything against it then yes everything's going to be found wanting if yeah, and if if casinos have been anything, mm-hmm. they have been a type of redistribution of wealth. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've seen it argued that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And 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 that's, I mean, people who are more interested in the uh, the forbidden term, uh, real <laughs> than uh, the real politics of uh, reality, <laughs> um, would basically say, you know, where are the casinos for black people. And that's mm-hmm. that's an inter- interesting question. Sure, it's brushing right up against the that Wilderson line that we were talking about in study group, where he was saying his metric for why the Black American was even worse off than the Native American was that the Native can make a recognized claim of we have had land taken from us, whereas the the Black person who goes before the highest court in his eyes can make no claim. Yeah, well, is, I find confusing, but okay. Uh, do we want to? Do anything specific in here? Do we want to move on? I'm ready to move on. Okay. Let's move on. Okay. Yeah, I, I just, uh, I guess, to do my sort of anti-civ due diligence, I wanted to talk about the hit piece that came up on A News, which is Wildism, the Nasty Endgame of Primitivism. really does just read as a screed that was maybe somewhat hastily put out and tries to make every sort of nasty connection you can of saying, um, I mean, obviously specifically about the wildest who, um, the long and short of what we know of them are a couple publications coming out of Chapel Hill, uh, North Carolina. And well, wildism is one person. I think that claim is, is fair. It, the claim is that it's not one person, but sure. Yeah. And these, these are, People, there's one definitely vocal, visible person who seems to do the majority of the representation of the group, 
John Jacoby. They are slash were in dialogue with Ted Kaczynski or helping <laughs> him publish new stuff that he's written. Um, obviously very heavily influenced by Ted. I don't think they would deny that. And the hit piece basically tries to do every nasty thing of saying um, that the anti-state position is inherently non-anarchist, that it has connections to fascism, and look, the one of the former Green Anarchy editors came out as some sort of neo-Nazi, which I don't even know the story behind that. Yeah, I can tell that. Okay. So I guess there is some basis to it. Um, the biggest, probably, uh, subsection of Howlers, I'll just read a paragraph of it that gives a representation of just how bad this is. In reality, these wildists were a long time coming. Primitivism has for a long time hosted reactionary elements, that word that people love. One of the former editors of GA turned out to be a fascist. Several members of the ELF have flirted with folk fascist symbolism, and even Zerzen has openly admitted that he is influenced by Spengler and Heidegger. Spengler was a racist who thought that miscegenation was weakening civilization, and Heidegger was a card-carrying Nazi. Should this surprise anyone? The primitivists' open advocacy of genocide... <laughs> <laughs> is something that first came from racist politics, and anyone can see how it fulfills the same role now when most, quote, overpopulation, unquote, comes from third world countries. Oh. Even more, they advocate the end of civilization because, quote, leftism, end quote, which I guess is a word they don't accept, is making it weak, and almost anyone who has interacted with the anti-civ milieu can see how it attracts young, white, bored, middle-class boys, guilty, who more than anyone are susceptible to Nazi politics. Fuck. Yeah. There's just so much in there that it's hard to even... Yeah, that's, out. that's nasty. Yeah. Um, I mean, so there are certain things that are just factually wrong, and then other things are you know, tortured facts. So w what is the GA story? Well, uh, the short version is that um, while there were three people who were the editors of GA all the way through, they had another three to five people who were editors for... Certain story. either very short lengths of time or longer lengths of time. This particular person that they're referring to was only an editor for like for months, I think, for one issue. Um, and and they were a person flirting with ideas, flirting with radical ideas. And so for the little while, they flirted with green anarchist ideas, and then they went on to flirt with uh, fascist ideas. I, I actually, this person sort of rings out a, a bit more than just their their fascism. Um, they, they were active, uh, so they were active on the internet probably circa 2005 sort of period, mm -hmm. maybe for a three to four year period. And I recall at some point in that uh, period, they actually uh, decided that I was their enemy. And I, I'm, I'm recalling it because they, they did something particularly hostile, like they, um, I think they might have started a like a DDoS campaign against uh, some websites for a while, but but those details are, are now hazy because it's been such a long time. But basically, they were responsible for an article that was on some... They somehow, they, there was some article somewhere around issue 15 of the GA magazine that they were, you know, the editor of that, that sort of is a fishy, and it's definitely on sort of national anarchism and the overlaps between... And and it's but it's only vaguely fishy. Uh, I'm I'm sure a fascist hunter would would point to it as being the clearest example of how fucked up GA was. But uh, but my recollection was just that it was fishy, and you know I could turn the page safely and move on. But uh, um, yeah, so basically it was a short term editor who was just flirting with you know crazy out there ideas, and along with green anarchist ideas, they also flirted with fascism. It feels like um, 
calling people fascists is is very exciting for anarchists who inhabit the internet right now. And yeah, twenty sixteen will probably be the year of yeah. fascism. <laughs> the year where anarchists discovered fascism. <laughs> and I, I find it really to be one of the most frustrating examples of kind of knee jerk thinking among anarchists, and it's as if anything that questions the left broadly mm-hmm. is possibly fascist. Yep. And that requires this total and complete valorization of the left-right political spectrum, which yeah, re- which was something that came out of the French Revolution. So we're talking about a metric for from over 200 years ago that was a pretty sloppy metric at that time yeah. and literally was just referring to where people sat in Parliament and for some reason is now still being used as a way of... of Understanding everything. Yeah, and it's just bizarre. I mean, it really is just bizarre, and it speaks to the lack of capacity for imagination and critical thinking and actually having conversations with ideas that don't just devolve into using labels as slurs. Left-right paradigm is anti-intellectual thinking, full stop. And and basically what is what is used as a tool by... by these, these anti-intellectuals is the idea that anyone who who doesn't agree with them, who doesn't use the same tool, is trying to create a third position. Oh yeah, <laughs> and uh, and it's repulsive. It, it, it's absolutely how demagogues frame conversations mm-hmm. dualistically. Not not just dualistically, but but basically, if you don't accept their dualism, mm-hmm. like that that you. That you're, I mean, in this case, it's it's crystal clear. You're a fascist if you don't accept the dualism. Um, and this is coming up not not just in the context of the wildism piece, but uh, we also received sort of early manuscripts for this uh, for this book that's coming out later this year that may, makes these uh, arguments sort of over and over again, and with lots and lots of examples drawn from more or less books that we publish and uh, and that we talk and think about. LBC, well-known fascist hiding hole. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <clears throat> Let's move on. Yeah, sure. So, um, in the course of uh, the discussion on the Wildism piece, something was referred to that I, uh, I really liked. Uh, it was from Ritual Magazine, which I know next to nothing about. I don't know if you can speak to it at all. I, I mean, the short version is it's an online magazine, and hopefully... We we little black heart will be part of making it uh, a physical magazine, I didn't know that. but um, but we're having I think we're having some cultural issues. These people don't really come out of the anarchist milieu necessarily. They seem to be an odd mix of internet, whatever it is that the internet creates and in, in, in its strange cauldrons. But um, but this project is sort of a strange combination of anti sekami stuff. And primitivist stuff, but not in the Zerzan sense of that of that word. So. Yeah, and that's basically what this person is getting at: is sort of carving out a primitivist position that is non-orthodox, I guess, mm-hmm. heterodox. Um, and it was written by Abe Cabrera, and the piece is called "Primitivism Without Catastrophe."
and it's a pretty short piece. Reads very easily, it's, and um, it's very rich in in suggestions and possibilities. So I'm not going to attempt to do a whole review of it, but uh, instead touch on a few points that I really liked. Um, they start off with the provocation that anti-civ thought has what they call a knowledge problem, by which they mean, quote, it seeks to criticize the totality from the view of the totality. It seeks to dismantle the tools that have built everything that it despises using the same tools. This culminates in the idea of a catastrophe, the cathartic collapse of its enemy, and a chance for the restoration of a just order. For someone with a hammer, everything appears to be a nail, and for someone with an apocalyptic narrative, everything leads to the end of the world. And... I think it's a really good place to start to interrogate the orthodox anti-sid position. And to me, it highlights the importance of not framing things in these big metaphysical dualisms, not framing things on this, um, or, or maybe the weaknesses of framing things on this sort of millions of year timescale that becomes incomprehensible and involves all kinds of speculation. And the strengths, relatively, of starting with a, an anti-sid critique from everyday experience and a critique of everyday life, which is not the direction that this person takes it, but... No, not at all. Yeah. I mean, what I actually thought what was interesting there, I thought that they made these very strong arguments about more or less accusing uh, primitivism to have come out of a, a probably a Catholic worldview. Mm-hmm. And they and they sort of had some strong references and some good, some good sinewy stuff in there. But I, I, th- I think that they, the author, shares... That perspective, the religious perspective. I mean, I don't want to exactly call it religious. I, I think Catholic is a bit more precise in this situation, and and part of what I don't understand as a person is what's the difference. In other words, I know that like a a lot of Protestant perspectives come come at, at a question that says that you have to find your own way to God, and you do it through your reading of the Bible. Okay, sure. Catholics don't come right from that perspective, and so there's something about a liturgical understanding of, of your own gospel that's that's in play here, and I don't exactly get it because I'm neither a Protestant or a Catholic, and I never have been. Mm-hmm. In other words, I, I, there, there's a subtlety there that only would make sense to someone who isn't, you know, because like, Catholics aren't that religious, like they're not a deeply religious people, even, even if they yeah. go to church all the yeah. time. Yeah. yeah, They're a ritualistic people. Right. And so... So there's some there's something in here that that that's working on another level that I think is really interesting and I don't exactly get and I I, I really hope that they write more mm-hmm. on this topic. Yeah, I could actually see a, a kind of follow up piece coming out of this one. They go on to refer to a, a contemporary environmental book called The End of Doom: Environmental Renewal in the 21st Century. By have, you, have you read it? No. Okay. Yeah, it sounds interesting though. And I they imply that the person's a libertarian. The author is Ronald Bailey. And this person is showing... I'm, I'm familiar with these kinds of arguments that the author's saying, look how many times in the past that people have anticipated ecological collapse. Mm-hmm. Especially peak oil is especially guilty of this. It's yeah. been called time and time again that it's peak oil. And apparently the author talks about uh, the same thing with respect to overpopulation, to cancer due to um, environmental toxins or in- industrial toxins, and that the... Cassandra's, as the author says, the doomsayers have always been wrong, and the author suggests maybe there will n- not be a collapse, even though that person, <laughs> the author, is also very much a climate change realist, but says maybe people will just keep living. 
And the author of this article says, ironically, accepting Bailey's premises might be the most primitivist position of all. If we are ultimately animals who are helpless to save ourselves unless we get rid of the instruments of our own seemingly absolute power, how is it that we can totally damn ourselves to non-existence? And I love this line here. Or rather, if we are too dumb to save ourselves, we may be too dumb to kill ourselves off. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, again, these are, this is so echoed in desert, you know? Right. So echoed in desert, um, it reminds me of my analogy of the human being to the cyanobacteria that just kind of does what it does and kills a bunch of things and doesn't have the a great level of awareness. I mean, you know, we like to think of ourselves as these hyper-conscious creatures, but you know, a lot of our daily behavior is just routine and automatic and non-reflective and... I mean, you know, to, to revert to pop culture, as stupid of a, of a movie and a concept as Mad Max is, there there is a reason why everyone really loves it or you know loves the aesthetic, aesthetic of it, and that's because it more or less implies that even after quote-unquote collapse, we're going to keep on living on, and probably in a way that feels parallel. There's definitely going to be re- reenactors who still want to drive cars. <laughs> I mean, hell, there's people who are, you know, Laura Croft reenactors in this world. Yeah. I, I'm not that familiar with Mad Max. Does the state form survive? There's no state form. Okay. There's a gang form. It's the gang form. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And mostly, Max is outside the gang form, and, and the gang form is, is not described, other than, you know, the, the craziest looking person is at the top of the pyramid. <laughs> and, you know, the next level of crazy people are the lieutenants and, you know. But. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then this, this person very much gets into the, um, the critique of the primitivist conception of nature, and, which is definitely a sore spot for me. So I'm just going to read this person's mm-hmm. spiel because they basically agree with me. Abe's. Abe's. Yeah, they have a, the the Abe, author has a name. Abe Cabrera. Many primitivists think of nature as being outside of us, and that it offers us our existence as a passive gift. And the real problem is that we have forgotten the freely given aspect of this gift. Recall here the Christian concept of grace. Just as man cannot earn salvation from Calvin's God, so man is impotent to create his means of life without the assent of nature. Of course, this is an absurd formulation. Nature, or if we want to use James Lovelock's much maligned term, Gaia, is the product of billions of living things throughout the eons working together and sustaining each other. It is the act of living things. They are formed, or they are both formed by it and form it in an elaborate mesh going from the smallest microorganism to vast, complex ecosystems to the biosphere itself. We must keep that in mind whenever we look at pristine nature. Sneer quotes. As Haskell says elsewhere in this book cited above, Nature is not a meditation room, and it is no Eden where fruit is picked effortlessly off the tree. There is struggle and strife, just as there is cooperation and mercy. I, I mean, so I, good. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's good. I, you know, it's again the, for me. I <laughs> there are certain terms that because I'm not a Christian and I've never been a Christian, I just I could never I, I never could use the term mercy in a sentence. I just uh, can't do it yeah. because to me, mercy. I just see it as a loaded term that Christians use to describe something, you know, to describe God. Yeah. And, and so this person, you know, again, like is clearly is touched by something that's a little different than my worldview and, and they're willing to use these non secular terms and, and it's totally appropriate. Well, yeah, I actually just love the explicitness of of associating. I was actually reflecting 
yesterday about how many people, and I, I actually don't want this to come across as an ad hominem slur, and I'm not trying to belittle the position by saying it, I'm just making the observation and pretending that I'm making a neutral factual claim, which there are none, that almost all of the anarcho-primitivists I know were raised with some form of Christianity. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And, yeah, but I, that's why this piece is exciting to me. Yeah. I mean, what they're saying that I do think is nice is, and, and this is perhaps another conversation about Christianity, is what are the forms of Christianity that don't have catastrophe at, at their heart? And, and again, that is one of the sort of strengths of Catholicism versus some of the others. You know, most Christians we know about in North America use Revelation as the entire Bible. Oh, totally. And, and everything they're doing is basically mapped in Revelation. Yeah. And, and this is basically saying, what is primitivism if we sort of leave that chapter out? Mm-hmm. And it becomes a lot more interesting if we do. Yeah. Yeah, when I was traveling the country and visiting um, land projects of different sorts, uh, few of the people I met who actually were, were doing things that materially were exciting to me mm-hmm. were total revelations people and, and oh, really? saying, yeah, like we need to recreate the 12 tribes and, and so on. And, uh, you know, right now I'm, we're trying to set up bartering networks cause you know, pretty soon we're not going to use our currency anymore because there's going to be this mass collapse and so on. Hmm. So do you think you'd be as excited about them today? Well, I was excited about what they were doing like with their bodies materially mm-hmm. in the world, do I think I would be as excited today? Yeah. Uh, you might have a different read now than you did then. Yeah. I mean, it would be, it's extremely difficult for me to imagine, say, um, if, if those people happen to be near me, having a high level of cooperation, just because I think, at that time, I, I definitely was more sensitive to the catastrophist arguments. Is that what you're, mm-hmm. what you're getting at? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, when I was in my early 20s, I... I was reading a lot of this catastrophist literature, including the, the peak oil stuff, and, and very much saying, like, fuck, like, I hope that this doesn't happen before I am prepared for it. Right. <laughs> and I wasn't a full-blown prepper kind of person, with, uh, but uh, uh, more... Sympathetic. More sympathetic. You well, my way of <laughs> Which might be a good transition to talking about what we're going to talk about this sure, week, which is, sure. which is your land project. Yeah, um, and so this is definitely something that I, I, I would say I agonized more over how to talk about this on this episode than I have on any other episode that we've done, and probably also any other episode that I've done with Free Radical Radio, so I imagine almost you know, within an hour after we finish recording this, I'm going to be thinking to myself, oh, I should have said this, I should have said that. Does it have a name? No, no, it doesn't have a name. We should refer to it as a name so we don't say the same clumsy, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> we'll, we'll just say the Albany the state Project. Right? No, <laughs> um, and since I started doing this project um, and I was absent from Free Radical Radio, I've gotten quite a few emails to the effect of, you know, oh, talk about this, why are you doing this, what's going on? And I, I've, I guess I've been consistently more or less evasive because I wasn't 
quite sure how I wanted to be a media object in the world with my personal life, and also because I don't like being prescriptive. But I guess I am going to talk just about my motivations and why I see this as an interesting thing. What, what is that thing? Maybe start there. Mm-hmm. So I've, I think I've said before here that I learned about what is called permaculture at basically the same time as I was learning about anarchism. And for me, the two have always been related and have always remained related. And I, I don't like to use the term permaculture anymore because it's become such a recuperative, commercialized term and is now largely a way of marketing to middle-class, upper-middle-class people and a way of basically trying to rescue agriculture from its own excesses. And so when I talk about it, I like to say forest gardening. And forest gardening is a way of recreating human habitat. It is a way of practicing horticulture that is oriented toward perennials rather than annuals, that is oriented toward polyculture rather than rows of the same plants. And it's a way of creating habitat rather than destroying it for non-humans. And it's a way of planting things that just as an ecosystem, everything has more than one function and every function is occupied by more than one thing. And so it's a way of having subsistence, shelter and food for human beings. You look like you want to say something. No, it, it sounds very similar to, to how I've heard permaculture described, which is as a design principle rather than a farming yeah. rather than a farming mm-hmm. principle. Mm-hmm. And I totally endorse that. What I would call the best or what the better incarnations of permaculture is just now. It, it really has. I mean, I don't want to derail this by saying my whole critique of the way that it's it's being received and represented now. But suffice it to say, capitalism has perfectly engulfed permaculture. Yeah, I I don't know much about that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, in other words, I I see permaculture, again, as an outsider to to this conversation. I see it in the same way that I see people who do body work, or or maybe it's 10 years away from being like what yoga is like. In in other words, maybe, sure, of course, capitalism is involved, but mostly it's involved by there being sort of like a totemic guru type figures sure, who who sure. are who make a probably a modest living giving seminars and whatnot, but I but I, I haven't seen a turn towards mechanizing permaculture. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a phenomenon that is totally real, what you're describing. And then there's also like big ag is hiring these people and basically saying, How can we make our agriculture less uh, self-immolating but in general what that looks like is they're are they hiring them for the marketing side or they're hiring them actually to do r&d both okay yeah Hmm. both um that's but that's not surprising no i mean we still have mass society we can't imagine a permaculture that could feed seven billion people Mm -hmm. um that's like an empirical question but yeah (laughs) yes yeah uh so so what are you doing so, so, doing, so you like forest gardening, yes. now you're going to make a forest garden. Yes, so I want to, with a group of friends, be practicing this in Albany, both on the subsistence end and on the sharing the skills end. And it's something that I think is interesting in its intersections with anarchism. And when you have the anti-civ critique, as I do, one of the big things is, what is civilization? Is it just this amorphous thing? 
And I would say it's not such an amorphous thing. It's a set of human beings that are in a certain relationship with ideological and material infrastructure, and that those two are dialectically related. And we have a situation, just as I was saying with the racism conversation, where you can't just smash civilization. I know some people would disagree with me, but I would say it's, it is in us and of us, and the way out, such as there is one, is to meaningfully change our relationships and change the what our subsistence is and what our sociality is. And so on the subsistence side, most of us, of course, are quite helpless and unskilled when it comes to providing our own subsistence. We've been specialized, and that's not an accident. It's a product of the coercive division of labor that has given us, uh, made most of us very good at a very few things. And a lot of us are... So something that struck me when I first started to care about these things, which was in my early 20s, was I started visiting these places where people were growing their own food, and I didn't know what the food plants looked like. And not only did I not, for instance, know what the whole plant of a, say, bell pepper looked like, up until I arrived at, at one of these first places, I didn't even notice that I didn't know Mm-hmm. what one of those plants looked like. And that, to me, spoke volumes. It was actually a really significant moment for me of the level of alienation I had from um, from the non-human world and from the things that were going into my own body. And around this same time, I was reading the anti-civ critiques for the first time, and they are talking about how one of the main colonial strategies is to make subsistence outside of the whole apparatus impossible. And... So to me, it, and again, the uh, James Scott, his book, um, uh, what's the, the art of not being governed? The art of not being governed. There's is another one. Um, seeing like a state, I think is the other one. Yeah, the art of not being governed is the one I'm talking about. That has an entire chapter that's basically about how to, what food you should grow if you don't want to be colonized. Mm-hmm. It's a gr- it's a great we we read this in the reading group, and what's great about it is it basically says that if you don't want to be colonized, you can't grow row crops, you can't right. grow grains, you can't grow all these things that that are pretty easy for an army to to basically uh, gain control over. And uh, more or less, what it what it says is that you have to grow tubers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think he calls it being illegible. Yeah, yeah, great. Which I think is is a great term and and a great image there. And um, actually, one of the public figures in the permaculture world who calls himself an anarchist actually loves that way mm-hmm. of looking at things and, and talks about how this is what can be done with force. What's their name? Toby Hemingway. Okay. Yeah. So so mostly what you've said so far is a pretty intellectual. I mean, I'm going to do the intellectual okay. thing that more. So something else that actually Toby Hubbard, that was a perfect segue, says that I really like is um, that agriculture implies certain social arrangements. That with, with agriculture, where you rely on a stored surplus, he says then you need a king to dole it out, you need soldiers to guard the surplus, you need bureaucrats to measure the surplus, you need slaves to harvest the surplus, and you need an ideology to rationalize the whole process. And the flip side of that being that I think forest gardening implies certain social arrangements as well. It's, um, it implies decentralization. It implies a, a high level of autonomy, something that actually, when I was um, first having disagreements with Kevin Tucker, something he said to me was, and he, he was basically saying he didn't like that I was espousing egoist, anti-civ ideas, and he said, uh, 
if there was ever a union of egoists, it was a hunter-gatherer band where everyone had all the skills necessary to live on their own. And I said, I don't disagree with you at all. <laughs> and I'm, I think that is the social arrangement that's implied by this kind of subsistence. Um, and so learning, I think, these skills is a way of having a higher level of autonomy and teaching these skills, sharing these skills with other people is a way of spreading autonomy generally and not destroying habitat just to be alive, just to be someone who's eating in the world uh, is a way of having a higher level of autonomy for non-humans. Um, and so I think there, that this idea of anarchists learning these skills and, and sharing these skills has the best aspects of the sort of dual power approach, but without the ugliness of reproducing hierarchy of reproducing the very thing that we're trying to get ourselves away from. Um, and to me, there's something poetically rich or to use your term sinewy about the fact that agriculture growing food through monocultural fields means constantly keeping the land at its lowest form of succession and, and not letting, um, uh, bushes and trees come into a space and change it. And so what you're doing in a sense is infantilizing the land. And I think at the same time you are infantilizing people by having them not know the basic skills necessary to survive. And there's something rich to me in there. I mean, but that, but that struggle has long since been lost. I mean, you know, I think we've talked about this number before, but something like only 1%, maybe 2% of the entire U S population is involved with food production at all. I think it's even lower than that actually. Yeah. And, and, I mean, perhaps you would count the bureaucrats who count it and, and who measure it. But, but I mean, to me, this the concept that you're talking about is so far removed from most of our experiences. Sure. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I don't disagree. And I think that's that's what I'm trying to get at by saying that the, the alienation is so high. That, <laughs> you know, that the bell pepper, which I ate like every fucking day of my life for years, I didn't even know what the plant looked like. And I think we do well by ourselves and others when we get closer to that. So two, two more intellectual things and then I'll try to talk about what I'm doing. So this, that's the subsistence end. And then the sociality end is the other thing. So changing the way that we have subsistence and changing the way that we have sociality. And to me, a way to push against mass society is to live in small groups that have subsistence in common and, this means treating people as individual human beings with their own desires and life stories that matter to you, not as abstract persons or categories of persons. And this is where the Dunbar's number element comes in again for me of saying that there is something psychologically encoded into us, that this is how our bodies want to live. And at the same way, it's a way of pushing against the idea of society as as reified values that come at you and, and suppress your life and instead making space for people to have individuated values. And so we are, in doing this, then creating the beginnings of sane social arrangements that look like real people living together and not uh, gross homogenous masses pushing down on each other. The union of egoists, to me, that Stern was talking about is people who can come together without losing themselves and without mass objectifying one another. And I think, again, the only way to push against something that is a bunch of uh, fixed social arrangements is to try to create new ones. And then finally, there is the sort of intangible 
thing here that uh, I have a hard time knowing how to express, and that is the relationship to the non-human. And I, something I think that almost uh, half the population of the world now lives in cities and interacts with the non-human quite little, except as you know, pests who come into your house, or pigeons on the street, or rats. And I think that there's we are absolutely losing part of ourselves in doing this, and probably in ways that we can only partially feel. And something I've been thinking about lately is how much of civilization and its ideology and what it makes us want to do is a consequence of existential dread and death anxiety and the things that come along with being cut off from the non-human and uh, being alienated from that non-symbolic intuitive meaning that we get from those interactions. So I think one of the critiques that comes down the pipe again and again is saying, well, you, you just want to be this withdrawalist person, and that's not what anarchism is. Anarchism is a verb, people say, even though it's obviously not. Um, and that means struggling, that means attacking, that means um, solidarity with people in the cities, and, and so on. And I think my reply to that would be, that's fine. If uh, I don't necessarily disagree with you, it's not exactly my orientation, but it's not something I'm going to try to tell people not to do, and I recognize it absolutely as being part of the history of anarchism, but I don't think, I, I think that's a bit of a false dichotomy. I don't think doing something like what I'm talking about means uh, not doing those things necessarily, and actually the... A, you are talking about emphasis. I'm talking about emphasis, sure. Yeah. Um, a mature forest garden can provide subsistence for people on a daily basis with there are numerous cases it's been empirically demonstrated that it, with just an hour or so of work sometimes even less one can have the subsistence that they need for a day which is less than a lot of us spend doing our daily subsistence at a job and so i think it's a bit of a canard to throw at people to say you're committing your whole life to this and this is giving you all your time and who cares? You're just going to be weirdos out in the woods that no one cares about. I think there's absolutely space to do other projects, to have other anarchist pursuits while doing this kind of thing and that is what I hope to do myself. And so, to talk about the personal practical side, yes, what I want to be doing is uh, growing and maintaining a forest garden and offering, uh, trying to, to break outside of the grossly uh, caged in and commercialized side of permaculture that makes it something that is uh, absolutely self-defeating by making it an esoteric practice that is only available to people who have the time and money to to take these classes where often you don't really learn that much anyway, and instead uh, be, be offering um, basically classes and internships to share these skills and try to propagate this idea. And, um, again, with the non-exclusionary aspect of this, I, I definitely plan to keep doing media and, and other pursuits like that. The, um, uh, do you have a particular connection to this part of New York? No. No. Um, some of the people that I'm involved with are, are very much people who have been in the permaculture world for a while, and uh, they have connections to that sort of network of people, and it is well known that... Uh, there's a dearth of of these sorts of courses and classes in the Northeast. They're they're, they're the ones who are going to do, be doing the bulk of the teaching. Yep, I'm going to be the uh, 
the neophyte. So probably this space is going to bring in a bunch of people that aren't like you at all. Yeah, that's something that I'm... That's absolutely going to be one of the, the things to sort of tease out. Um, the trap, I think, would be to fall into spending a lot of time doing that to people who don't really share almost any of my values. And so I, I would like to, in doing this, make a closer connection between the people who care about permaculture and the people who care about anarchism and try to to blend those ideas to a greater degree than they are. I've discovered that there's a small minority of people who see the connection and, and consider it to be an important thing. There are actually some people in Pennsylvania that are, are doing pretty much what I'm talking about. Um, and I don't know if they would call themselves anarcho-primitivists, but they're kind of in that world. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, on the East Coast, yeah, it's pretty sparse. I mean, you've been telling me that the anti-sub thing is really not a thing out there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, um, and so I guess the, I mean, the, the question, I'm trying to imagine what the questions are that, that I, as someone who's listening to this, because mostly I'm listening to this, would have. And, um, and mostly it's questions that you can't answer for a year or two. Do you think that you do you think you're going to easily be able to switch from an urban person who's sort of thinking about the problems that you have that you're going to solve this week to being a <laughs> rural person who whatever problems you're going to have in the, in the country they're not going to be problems you're going to solve for months if not years. Sure. Yeah, I think that will there will definitely be a qualitative transformation there. I mean, um, so some people listening to this might not know that I I'm totally a suburban kid. I spent almost my whole life in the suburbs, and so um, I've spent about three, three years, a little more than three years, living in in cities. And uh, I don't feel like I ever transformed into being a city person. Really, I, I, uh, I don't live the nightlife. I, I I'm not a super social person. Uh, so I think it. I don't think there will be a sense of. Um, of of loss of the urban so much as like you were saying a, a slowing down I uh, yeah I mean for I'm me kind the, of like a, a like anxious workaholic person so that will be a change yeah that will be a huge change yeah <laughs> <clears throat> I mean again you know I uh, while of course I've lived in the city most of my life I I would say um, I've spent a lot of time in the country and I know country people yeah. and the big difference from for me between the city and the country is that sense of time and, and the difference. Like for me, if I'm only going to have three days in the country, you know, I, I want to make sure that at least two of them are spent, you know, hammering nails or whatever in the fuck it is. And really a lot of times in the country, you, you get the attitude when people get up in the morning, they're like, and today I'm doing nothing. I briefly lived in Banda Aceh, Indonesia, which is you know, a somewhat recently urbanized place and probably because of that and, and other social factors, the sense of time there is very different from what I was used to. So when people say, you know, when do you want to do this or when do you want to meet up? They will say either morning, afternoon, <laughs> evening, or night. And at first I was just confused and I would say, okay, well, yeah, yeah, but when? And it's afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> no, for sure. Things happen uh, very slowly. I mean, I think that probably <laughs> the thing that I... You know, yeah, I'm, I, one of the things that I've really benefited from these conversations about is sort of uh, calibrating what I like and don't like about anti-safe perspectives. And I continue to think that, that pers- anti-safe perspectives don't talk enough about time and, and, and what the war against clocks should look like. Because there's the strongest argument for mo- moving outside the city is 
is that the city is where the clock rules. Yeah. And, um, and I hate that aspect of myself, even though it absolutely is a true aspect of myself. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I would like to join others in the, in the, the war against time. Yeah. Yeah. That was actually the, the thing that got me hooked on the anti-sib critique in the first place was just the, the fact that people were even talking about that kind of thing. Okay, well, I think that we have done an episode. Yeah, and uh, we're going to do one more next week. This was March 19th, actually. I don't think we said that we're recording it, and we're going to do one more on the 25th or 6th, and then I think there will be a hiatus, and then we'll come back to see what the show turns into. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.